You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had a chat with Ben Eltham from New Matilda about federal politics. Then Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director of the Melbourne School of Government, joined me in the studio to discuss the UK election campaign, the policy platforms that have been put forward, as well as the looming election day, which is just two days away. Then we had a chat with Dr John Falzon, CEO of St Vincent de Paul Society, ahead of his appearance at the Progress 2017 conference. John and I discussed and reimagined what a good society might look like. Then finally, Dr Sarah Bolter, Research Fellow at the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility, called in to discuss agriculture and land clearing and its impact upon our greenhouse gas emissions. And you are listening to 3 RFM with Amy Mullins. This is Uncommon Sense and we have Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, in the studio with us to chat about federal politics. Hey, Ben. Yeah, good morning, Amy. Morning. Morning, morning. Morning. What a bright and lovely, sunny, sunny kind of morning it's it is. It's sparkling. Too. And by sparkling, <laughs> oh, yes. I mean the water is glistening on <laughs> yeah, the surface. That's right. <laughs> Shining off the wet pavement. Yes, and that, that beautiful fog that comes out of your mouth when you breathe is also occurring. Good old Melbourne. Ah, love love it. it. Yeah, yeah. And you are from Brisbane, aren't you, originally, Ben? Uh, Yes, I am, indeed. But you've adapted. I have, I feel like. I'm wearing a scarf right now. Yes, it's a beautiful (laughs) colour, very nice, rich maroon. This is knitted by my mum. Aww. (laughs) That's like seriously hardcore. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, no, honestly, love, love. So, Ben... Federal politics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's let's take it down to some serious discussions about policy here. Um, so there's a couple of things happening right now. Um, first of all, we'll, we have mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the Finkel report has been edging and edging closer and we've been waiting and waiting and uh, every man and their dog has been out there talking about what might be in the Finkel report. Um, and there have been a few things that are, that are being floated because as we know, a carbon tax is not on the table, uh, nor is a emissions intensity scheme because it seems as if the backbenchers are not necessarily pro that idea, which is probably similar to um, an emissions trading scheme, but a little bit different. Uh, so now we've got things floated like a low emissions target because obviously once we've reached the end of our renewable energy target, we need to replace it with something. I mean, is this all just a bit of language or what What really is going to be the difference? Um, well, it's not policy. That's what it's definitely not. Uh, mm. So that's right. The government has commissioned Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, to go away and write a report on Australia's energy policy, basically the future of Australia's energy system, um, which has some problems, as I think we all realise. You know, the grid is pretty rickety and getting older and um, a lot of the coal power that currently fires the grid, you know, a lot of the electricity is generated by coal and all of those plants are reaching the end of their life span, like Hazelwood. Mm. Um, And so Finkel's been charged to go away and write a report, but he hasn't handed it in yet. And in the meantime, we're seeing all sorts of interesting little sort of power plays behind the scenes. And the energy minister, Josh Frydenberg, has also been out there spruiking the the advantages of things like uh, carbon capture and storage, (laughs) the apocryphally named clean coal. Yes. Um, And yesterday we saw the release of uh, some kind of uh, media release. I don't think it was exactly a report by the CSIRO recommending this thing called a low emissions target, which would 
replace the renewable energy target, which is running out in 2020. So the renewable energy target was um, basically a target imposed by the federal government back in Christine Milne's day, actually, when she had the balance of power, and it was it was uh, out to 2020. So 2020 is approaching and there's nothing to replace that. Um, now, I, I wonder if it's even going to be that necessary because the, the price of gas the price of gas is going up and the price of wind and solar is going down so it may be the case that we don't actually need another renewable energy target because economics will just do its work but um the interesting thing about this so-called low emissions target that they're talking about is that it will include gas and it will include carbon capture and storage which i think both both of those technologies, people are pretty sceptical about whether mm. they really will be economic in the future. Exactly. And we've seen Queensland just uh, announce that they're going to bring back some of their gas um, stations that they've mothballed and uh, reinvigorate gas in, in Queensland. And as we've seen, South Australia intends to actually build one. I mean, this whole focus on gas as being um, part of a low emissions kind of makeup or energy makeup is seems to be you know the flavor of the month is this something that you do you think what it's just a nice way of replacing coal because it's become unfashionable do you think it's even realistic to be talking about gas is it just a cop-out yeah i'm a bit confused um the palaszczuk government is firing up swan bank an old power plant again which i'm kind of surprised about but I think any of the gas that's going to be used in the future is most likely to be a peaking gas. So rather than um, operating all the time, they'll just fire it up when they need a spurt of electricity at a particular time. But w- with the way that battery technology is progressing, you know, battery can also provide peak power in, at those times of, of maximum load. So, you know, we might see a bit of gas in the next five years or something, but I think in the long term, renewables are certainly going to, to fill that space. Mm. And I remember, you know, wait, what was it, two months ago or something, when we were talking about Elon Musk and his uh, suggestion on well, Twitter indeed. that he could provide battery storage, that just seemed to conveniently dissipate in terms of oh, no. the publicity around it. It's still going on. So the South Australian government has tended for a big battery storage thing, you know, so they're going to pay someone or other to do battery storage mm, in South Australia. But Turnbull picked up the phone and had a chat with Elon too and yeah. seemed to be on board with this. So federally, do you think that that is a, a likely possibility? Look, probably not federally because, you know, the, the federal government really can't, doesn't really know what it wants to do with energy. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the federal government's energy policy over the last four years, when it hasn't been dismantling all of Labor's environmental regulations and the carbon price and so on and so forth, it hasn't really had a solution except let the market rip. And of course, the problem, as we know, is that the national electricity market is pretty broken. So yeah, we're still waiting for all of those fundamental energy market reforms that we've been promised, including by this government. You know, still no movement on the five minute rule on the national electricity market, which is the one that allows the coal plants to gouge customers um, 
basically by gaming the system. You know, um, so everything in energy policy seems to move very slowly and seems to be profoundly captured by the vested interests. And so no change there. Yeah, what a shock. Uh, um, I saw an article suggesting that Josh Frydenberg was doing the rounds in calling the backbenchers to pull them into line because we've seen um, some grumblings since President Donald Trump has uh, withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. And, uh, of course, that's a convenient time for those on the particular conservative side of the Liberal Coalition government or the Coalition government to actually say, well, you know, should we be doing this? Clearly that's uh, in a minority, isn't it? Oh, yes, I think that's true. I think the majority of... Well, the Cabinet is still committed to the Paris Agreement. Australia has officially said that we are remaining in the Paris Agreement. But there's no doubt that many of the right-wing backbenchers would like to exit the Paris Agreement because... Very consistently, they don't believe in climate change itself. So why would you have an agreement to combat it if you don't actually think it's happening? Um, And that denialist rump of the Liberal Party is still very strong. Mm. Um, So Frydenberg does have his work cut out dealing with those dinosaurs and troglodytes. Um, But, you know, I've also seen a fair bit of interesting analysis on the, the US exit from Paris, which is that it won't have that big an effect on emissions because emissions drops in America are now being driven largely by economics, by the fact that coal plants are in fact closing because they're not making money anymore and renewables are now cheaper, so they're being built. And they're also being driven by policies at the state level in America, particularly California, which, as we know, is the world's eighth largest economy. So, you know, I I think it's largely a piece of grandstanding by Donald Trump. India and China are the future and they are remaining in Paris. So it makes sense for Australia to remain in Paris as well. And Mm. by the way, address our incredibly dirty electricity system before it's too late. Exactly. It really has more implications for foreign relations and the US's standing and their leadership on every global issue. It's really one of the first times, as Gareth Evans has recently said, that the US has decided not to lead in a particular area. Yeah, it's a US retreat, particularly from Europe, because obviously the Europeans are very strong on Paris. Um, Now, this has all sorts of implications because, of course, the Americans want the Europeans to come along with them on other foreign policy issues. You know, Trump wants the Europeans to spend more on defence. Well, you know, climate is also a security issue. So um, he's learning, I think that if you're going to, you know, grandstand, if you're going to make decisions like this, decisions have consequences. And one of the consequences is it's going to be harder to get cooperation from your European allies. Mm, It is so true. Um, Ben, we also have some movement on that penalty rates change, which we saw the Fair Work Commission rule on. What is the development there? Uh, the, the Fair Work Commission has announced uh, the penalty rate cuts and when they're phasing in, and they're going to phase in over four years, uh, beginning on July 1. So there'll be a pay cut for workers from um, about three weeks from now um, if you're in the hospitality industry. And, and retail. Retail's coming as well. Yeah. Um, so um, they're not immediately big cuts, but over those four years to 2020, they will phase in to those full cuts that we talked about a few weeks ago. Mm. So um, penalty rates on public holidays and on Sundays are going down and that means people's pay packets will reduce Absolutely. If, if they're being paid the award. And it is you know, one of the lowest paid or those are the lowest paid industries really. 
Yeah. yeah, and I mean, people are asking, why would you do this at a time when wage growth is on its lowest on record? But that's Indeed. actually, nonetheless, that's what's happening. Yeah, it's mind-boggling and really hard to understand, to be honest. And also disturbing that the government, as we've said before, thinks that wage growth will just magically increase based on uh, company tax cuts. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing it now really harming the economy. So the fact that ordinary workers are struggling to to get any kind of wage growth, their pay packet is remaining the same, or even in the case of hospitality and retail workers reducing, um, of course, they can't spend as much money if they don't get paid that much money. So um, that's affecting the economy, of course. This is a big sector of the employment force, the labour force. Um, you know, and if you combine that with sky-high property prices in Sydney and Melbourne flowing through to very high rents for renters, you can see why the economy is struggling because people are spending more and more of their pay packet just to keep a just roof over their heads. basics, yeah. yeah. Well, really, um, particularly with rentals, once you've paid for rent, there isn't a great deal left and people are apparently meant to be saving that money. Well, you know, I mean, I think for for many people in these low-paid industries, the idea of owning a house is now a pipe dream, particularly Mm. in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, And, and, you know, we are seeing very, very major changes in the social contract of Australia, which for many, many decades has been based on the idea that you could own a house. Um, You know, now I think that dream is over for many younger Australians and I think we're storing up a lot of trouble for ourselves in the future. Very much. Um, Great amount of discontent there and also um, just a lack of agency uh, given the whole neoliberal um, ideology is about giving people agency and their ability to create their dreams. Oh, freedom to choose, Amy. Very important. Freedom to choose. Um, Government, not very important at all. Look, I mean, it's worth mentioning the economy. The economy is limping along. You it know, is. Some economists are talking about another quarter of negative growth this quarter, which would be the second in three quarters. Um, you know, that's perilously close to a technical recession. Now, I don't think anyone thinks we're in a slump as such, but we're only just limping along. You know, this is a long way away from robust growth. Um, employment is only just flatlining. You know, hours worked are falling. Um, the economy is not in great shape and that's got to be hurting the government politically. It does, it does. And Ben, let's move to something where the government is imperative in terms of their contribution. It's education and uh, and that investment, not a cost, it's an investment in uh, the intellectual capacity and development of children in Australia. So uh, <coughs> This is socialist talk, Amy. Oh, it's I know. very early in the morning I'm for just, this. I'm trying to frame the discussion <laughs> a little bit here, Ben. Because, oh, very good, uh, yes. We, I, it actually came up at a, a dinner that I went to, a big party, um, and, uh, and that was the key discussion was the idea about uh, these being investments, not costs. Um, and uh, You go to different parties to the parties I go to. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, I diversify my party. <laughs> Ben. I'm everywhere. I don't go to any parties anymore. <laughs> let's face it, I'm old. No. Oh, come on, Ben. That makes me slightly old too. Um, so Greens and Gonski, the Greens, uh, we don't often get to talk about them because they haven't been as critical yet in the last couple of months in terms of getting things passed. But now that we've got Gonski 2.0, which the coalition put forward, which um, basically equalised the funding for schools across the board in, in terms of private, Catholic and public schools and that a needs-based model. Um, that I guess they've gone back to it in the more pure sense, but they've 
pulled back funding uh, based on what the Labor government would have provided. We've seen the Greens come out to suggest that, well, you know, we like the coalition's model in terms of treating everyone fairly and the same, but we'll only support it if Labor, if they provide the same levels of investment that Labor would put forward. What do you think is going to happen when this gets to the Senate and we have this kind of pushing and pulling? Um, I think this is a potential possibility for the coalition to maybe pass this bill because if they can get the Greens on side and some of the crossbenchers, then they're well on the way to getting the numbers they need in the Senate. So it will be an interesting decision for the Greens to make. Now, the Greens are saying they like, as you mentioned, they like the model that the coalition has brought in, which is, um, I guess, I wouldn't say it's a pure model, but um, at any rate, it's less of a... (laughs) Closer to the original intent... Of, At least according to Gonski. Yes, I think it, it, it's more – it's redistributive in one sense. Um, you know, this is where schools funding gets terribly complicated, mm. right? Because, you know, it's very hard for me to explain on the radio <laughs> what, what is the difference between these three extremely complex um, f- systems of schools funding. I mean, I think the first thing we can focus on is the money. The coalition wants to give more money than is currently being given, but less money than what Labor would b- would have promised. Okay? Which isn't really a surprise. So that, there's that. And then the model itself, the coalition has created a new model for schools funding. Now, some schools will get less money and some schools will get more money and some of the private schools will suffer. And there is at least some some kind of element of needs-based needs-based funding there. So that there will be some kind of aspect of funding the schools that need more money, giving them more money than the schools that don't need more money. Um, and the way they're doing it is terribly complicated and it's to do with the schooling resource standard, as it's called, and there's a formula that the coalition has come up with with a 20%, 80% for public and private schools. And, you know, um, you could pretty quickly um, spend your whole life getting into the nitty-gritty of this. Um, I think the key decision politically for the Greens is um, whether they want to back the coalition plan on this because I think there will be political blowback for the Greens if they do back the coalition plan. The education unions are very opposed to this new system. Um, Labor is opposed to it. And I would argue that Labor is opposed not just because the money is not there, but they also think the model has profound flaws. And I'll give you just one example. Um, According to some analysis, the new model will give the Northern Territory schooling system less money than now. So That's disturbing. So that's the neediest system and yet that will get less funding. So I think there are some real devils in the detail here and until we actually really sit through and nut it out carefully, um, I actually don't think we, are in, we have the information at the moment. Something that came out in Senate estimates last week was that the government had fudged its school's calculator so the data that they were showing on that school's calculator was wrong. Mm. So there's, <laughs> there's already been some kind of smoke and mirrors that have entered into this debate. You know, so I'd be very careful when you, when you hear the government say this is more money for schools and this is more equal. I'd just be careful about that assertion because um, the education policy experts that I've talked to say that that's not the case. Mm. Well, it's an easy assertion to make when it's so complex, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and, I mean, people could look at the uh, the Parliament website and go through the documents if they are that diehard, but uh, I'm, be- I'm very surprised if anyone really would. Uh, look, I'm going to look into it carefully for New Matilda over coming weeks. 
Which is why we have you yeah, and you, Matilda. Yeah, yeah, I'm so everyone's supporting you, Matilda. Um, but just at the moment, I'm, I'm working on this Centrelink RoboDebt stuff. So. And let's just quickly touch on that because it's yeah, really interesting sure, yeah. to see that uh, the CSIRO have been asked to step in. I mean, where are we up to in this kind of complete uh, catastrophe? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the Senate inquiry into RoboDebt has now met and it's had a lot, of, a lot of hearings around the country and they've been extraordinary hearings, extraordinary scarifying details of people's lives being ruined basically by this um, debt algorithm, this so-called online compliance initiative um, (laughs) the government has implemented. Um, And, you know, there was particularly interesting hearing down in Hobart where we heard from the Tasmanian welfare groups where they said, look, this has actually overwhelmed the entire Tasmanian charity system just because of the fact that there are so many Tasmanians on benefits. Mm, Tasmania has the highest level of disadvantage. Tasmania has something like 50% functional illiteracy. So there's a lot of people in Tasmania who don't have a lot of schooling and really struggle with these very, very complex online systems that mm. the government has forced onto them. And it doesn't it doesn't even use plain English. No, not even close. No. So whether you can read or not, it's really difficult. So Oh, yeah, we're not talking about people who can't read. We're talking about people who would struggle to understand... Comprehend. ...this in, incredibly complex bureaucratic mm. system, mm. you know, and that would actually be many of us, I would argue. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, the most w- educated yep. would not understand a word of what is in the letter that comes out. Yeah, and in fact, we can't understand it even as journalists and people investigating this stuff because Centrelink are so opaque and, Mm. you know, there's there's such a lack of transparency. You know, I've been fighting with them for freedom of information requests for months now to try and have a look at the actual algorithm. You know, they still won't show us the actual algorithm. You know, so things like that, it's it's very, very complex and it's not surprising that people don't understand it and therefore are saddled with thousands of dollars of debts that they don't actually and owe. And then debt collection. Yeah. So the, now Centrelink has handballed it over to the CSIRO to try and fix up the algorithm, right? <laughs> the CSIRO has this organisation called Data61. It's the yeah. sort of CSIRO's, um, I guess, sort of innovation IT kind of arm. Um, and they're the, like the computer gurus. Um, now, there's a lot of controversy within CSIRO about whether this is a good idea, whether in fact... Well, it's politicising the CSIRO. Indeed, it's fundamentally politicising the CSIRO. Should the CSIRO be intervening in this heavy-handed government oversight, you know, robo-debt system? You know, and many people, I know many scientists are very unhappy that they're doing it. Well, I just wonder when we're looking at something like an algorithm, even if you can optimise it, you're still going to have flaws and it's not the same as having a human actually interact and look over things. Yeah, absolutely. And the government is still insisting that there's nothing wrong here. So if you listen to the Senate testimony by, for example, the boss of the Department of Human Services, Secretary Catherine Campbell, she repeatedly said there's no problem here this is not a debt notice this is just an initial clarification letter (laughs) you know we're just asking people to go online and clarify their details you know and if if there's still a problem then then we'll sort it out you know which is so she's just completely detached from reality and, and really maintaining that you know white is black and black is white you know so for example the government maintains 
that there aren't any errors. There's no, you know, there's been a widely publicised figure of a 20, 25% error rate in these robo-debt notices. The government still maintains that because they're not actually debt notices, they're just asking for information and clarification, mm. therefore they can't be an error. You wow. know, so it's like, it's true kind of yes minister, Sir Humphrey yeah, kind of stuff. Very legalistic. Yeah, and look, it's all fun and games until you realise that there are real people caught up in this mess. You know, people who are having their lives turned upside down by um, the federal government pursuing them for a debt that they didn't incur. And that mm. in many cases, they have no way of proving that they didn't incur. Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, the documentation as well to to have all of that still on file on, or on hand is very rare. The documentation, um, the the internet site itself, the website, MyGov, incredibly difficult to use, mm. crashes all the time. All the time, yes, that is true. Um, let's talk about Centrelink's phone line: forty-two million unanswered calls mm. last year. Forty-two million. In a population of 23 million. So it's two, an answer, two unanswered calls for every single Australian. It's hardly efficient, let alone any other consideration. Surely, looking at those figures, people would think there's a better way of doing it and we could save our money in the long term as well as, you know, dealing with the Australian population in a much more respectful and useful way. Yeah, look, you know, the government has tried to implement incremental reforms and they've been dragged kicking and screaming, I think, by the Senate inquiry to do that. So, for example, they've introduced registered mail for these letters. So, um, you know, they've been able to at least improve that side of it. So if the letter gets sent out and you don't receive it, you're not automatically found to be your fault. Um, you know, they have made the letters slightly easier to read. Um, they are slowly working on the website to make it slightly less of a usability disaster. Mm. But these are still incremental tweaks um, for an overall philosophy which maintains that it's your fault if you're the welfare recipient and if their clunky computer program picks up some kind of flag that says that the numbers don't match, then it's your responsibility to go and sort that out with Centrelink. And we know how difficult that is for people to do. We do, we do. Um, and uh, it will continue to be an issue, clearly. Oh, it's expanding. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing. The government is expanding the robo-data oh, really? matching. From 1 July, they're going to start sending all these out to pensioners. Oh, gosh. Yep. Mm. Yep. So, no um, words yeah. There. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm writing a big piece for New Matilda on that at the moment. But, yeah, there's, um, that's going to keep continue to run and run that story because, you know, it's not going away and, indeed, the government is increasing it. No, well, thankfully, we at least have a Senate inquiry into this and that will be some level of oversight. It will be a very interesting report when they finally hand it down. Yep, we will keep an eye out for that. Thank you very much, Ben, for joining us. Oh, thanks, Amy. Yeah, I'm off to progress now. Have fun. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're talking to John Falzon in, uh, in an hour or that so. That looks really exciting. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his too because uh, he cuts through all of that spin and, uh, and rhetoric. Yeah, that'll be good. It will. All right, well, I'll leave you to it. 
That was uh, Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and you can check out his work at New Matilda and uh, via his Twitter, which is at Ben Eltham. And uh, yes, as you see and hear, well, you didn't see him, but I saw him. He's looking fabulous and he will be at the Progress Conference. So if you don't get to go there, I'm sure Ben will be tweeting. So uh, as promised, we have a special guest in the studio here. He's uh, Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director of the Melbourne School of Government. And we were very delighted to have Andrew join us uh, a month or so ago to discuss Brexit and the the fallout and implications of that. And now we have Andrew back uh, to give us all the lowdown on the UK election because uh, people are going to be voting soon, aren't they, Andrew? And thanks for joining us. They are. Thanks, Amy. It's nice to be here. No, it's good. Two days, two and a half days. Yes, it's kind of... I'm a bit glad, actually, that we're getting to that point. I know it's not my election to vote in, but um, I'm feeling the anticipation all the way across the ocean. Yeah, well, it's building up. It's been less than three weeks, of course. I mean, British elections are blessedly, you know, short, sharp and sweet or or not. Or not, Mm. yes. Well, and we've seen that a great deal has actually occurred during this election campaign in terms of major events. Um, And as we know, there's the the Manchester attacks um, and then now there's three other attacks that were in London, um, all terrorism. Uh, This is something which is traditional Tory ground, security, uh, terrorism, and often you'll see um, that people will swing back to a Tory government when these types of major events uh, arise. But the polling doesn't show that, does it? No, it doesn't. And and look, no one thought, including, I guess, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, leader of the Labor Party, that we would have been here um, 10 days ago, a week ago even. Uh, when the manifestos were launched, uh, the Conservatives were 17 points ahead uh, of an average of polls. And now on the average, yeah, that is massive. That would have led to a landslide that we, you know, we would have seen Conservative governments from here to kingdom come, which I guess was is the ultimate aim of Brexit in the eyes of of the delusional right and the mm. Tory party. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, now we're at an average of 7% lead, which is still large and as an average, but some polls uh, have Labour as a minority government. So it's up for grabs uh, and that, as you say, those terrorist attacks, one would normally have expected them to shift the ground in favour of the right and and they haven't and that's because Theresa May is very vulnerable on police cuts in particular yes. and of course you know these events have happened on the watch of the Conservatives. Yes well it's hard to say I'll protect you when they were the ones in government yeah. when people are feeling not protected. Yeah exactly and you know Jeremy Corbyn is talking a good game of saying Theresa May as Home Secretary and the Cameron government uh, before this one mm. was responsible for nearly 20,000 police cuts. And Theresa May's response to that has been, well, uh, the Chief of Police says that they're resourced fine. I mean, yeah. isn't that a little <laughs> bit of a cop-out to bring in or politicise someone, you know, the, the leader of the police like yeah, that? Absolutely. And, of course, she has to do what she's told. Uh, so she has to stay on message and she can't be seen to be political. So Theresa May is exploiting uh, that vulnerability on the part of Cressida Dick, uh, the head of the police. So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's 
a bit below the belt, mm. um, but, you know, she's desperate. Uh, she's running scared at the moment. Yes, because she was the one who called this election. It was yeah. an unnecessary election. Uh, uh, clearly, she wanted a mandate or a personal mandate to negotiate Brexit, and she thought that this was really what they needed to be able to have that force within Parliament to push back against Labor. I mean, is this a bit of a failed strategy? Well, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, you look back at past prime ministers, including in this country, that took over in effect by stealth and didn't have a popular mandate. And you can understand why people like Linton Crosby and others would have said to Theresa May at the time, you don't have a popular mandate. You were in effect um, the prime minister by default after all of those other mm. people fought it out and uh, to the death. Uh, yeah, she just swung in at the end, she didn't did. she? She did, and she was pro-Remain during the campaign, albeit very very weakly and sitting, you know, very much, uh, you know, on the sidelines in a sense. Um, and uh, so, you know, one would have, uh, that argument would have been made quite strongly to her. And of course, they were so far ahead in the polls. And Jeremy Corbyn was seen as such a weak, far left, extreme leader uh, that would make Labour unelectable. So it was an opportunity that they, you know, I guess, understandably chose to take. Mm. Well, I mean, let's quickly look at Jeremy Corbyn, who he's had a very tumultuous time as leader of the Labor Party, and we've seen challenges, leadership challenges to Jeremy Corbyn only semi-recently. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that he's still even there, yeah. um, but is he now solidifying his position in Labor, or is there still a bit of disgruntled feeling and sentiment in the Labor ranks against Jeremy? Oh, look, as we know, Amy, um, about three quarters of his parliamentary colleagues do not like him and do not support his uh, him as leader. Um, and let's just quickly explain that to the listeners because yeah. when we have these party leadership votes, not only does the caucus vote or the party, like parliamentarians themselves, but we also have party members, average Labor, you know, voters and members who also get a say. Yeah, well, and this was an innovation brought in by Ed Miliband, the previous leader, um, after he lost the election. Um, and uh, basically people could sign up for four pounds. Uh, become Labour members, get a vote on the leadership and they effectively overwhelmed the parliamentary party which previously had controlled uh, leadership selection. So we've got a situation in which absolutely we've got a leader of the Labour Party in power who's supported above all by the young activist uh, new members of the Labour Party and by the way some of those four pound uh, new members were not real Labour members. No, uh, they were yeah. people who you know, were voting tactically because they thought <laughs> get caught been in and he will make Labour unelectable. Um, so, uh, you know, this was an amazing situation in which we had someone elected leader who most uh, members of the parliamentary party thought would make Labour unelectable. Mm. Now, they may be changing their minds because I think Corbyn has not only surprised the Conservatives and people like Linton Crosby um, and Theresa May, um, but he's also surprising many uh, within the Labour Party who are now starting to flock to his side and saying, you know, Jeremy's our guy. <laughs> amazing how amazing. people can uh, mm. change their position. Uh, well, you know, self-interest uh, is a very powerful <laughs> driver of human behaviour. Sure is. Well, I mean, it's true if, you're, if your seat is in jeopardy, but he looks mm. like he might save it. It is time to get behind the leader. Yeah.
Some people are playing a you know difficult game because um, you know some people are not quite aligning themselves with him, and it's difficult if you've been a, an open opposer of Corbyn's leadership, say someone on the right of the Labour Party, um, to to flock to his side. But on you know it's also complicated that it, by the fact that a number of these people are also campaigning in constituencies uh, that voted strongly pro Remain or pro Leave in the Brexit campaign, and so they're they're. Dealing with that very tricky, difficult situation, Labour has opted uh, to accept the result of the referendum and but to campaign in favour of getting a good deal for Britain and a better deal that they argue the Conservatives would achieve. Yeah, well, let's look. What is the, the differentiator, the differentiating factors between what Theresa May will do uh, in terms of negotiating Brexit and then what Jeremy Corbyn proposes to do? Because there are some key differences here that mm. may sway people. Yeah. Well, it's difficult to say, to be honest, because Theresa May isn't giving much away um, in terms of what she actually wants and aspires to achieve from the Brexit negotiations. All she has said is that her leadership will be strong and stable. She's the best place to get a ring, a good deal from those recalcitrant Europeans who, of course, uh, are all, you know, all 27 of those Europeans are incredibly unified. Um, And so it's going to be difficult for anyone to get a good deal and for either side to say that they can get a better deal. Uh, You know, that's that's, uh, in many ways a leap of faith. So we don't know really what kind of Brexit Theresa May wants. Mm. She said that she will walk away um, rather than accept a bad deal. But, of course, walking away would be the worst of all possible deals. Well, they've already sent the letter, given it to them to express that they're mm. leaving. Yeah. That's just going to be hugely problematic, isn't it, to renege on that and you've already started the process of leaving mm. and putting all those bureaucrats in place and starting the negotiations. Yeah. Surely you need to, to kind of err one side or the other. Yeah, well, you know, I think... Um, I mean, Theresa May says that she will get a good deal. Um, so does Je- so does Jeremy Corbyn. He says that he will get... Uh, so he wants to assure not a hard Brexit, but a Brexit that will retain British access to key goods markets in particular. Now, that's that's playing to those traditional constituencies in the in the Midlands and the north of England who defected to UKIP um, during uh, the elections. Now, Theresa May calculated that those UKIP voters would largely flock to the Conservatives, as they have. UKIP, the UKIP vote has collapsed. They were a one-issue party and they've had internal leadership mm, uh, Well, Nigel Farage is no longer. Yeah. Well, exactly. So... Both sides are playing a tricky deal. They're trying to attract votes that drifted elsewhere um, during the referendum. Um, May's, you know, strong and stable leadership was meant to appeal to the core Conservative vote uh, plus the UKIP voters. Jeremy Corbyn is trying to ensure that those traditional working class voters, who's, uh, who, after all, their livelihoods are at stake with a loss of access yeah. um, to to Britain's largest, the largest market in the world, the European Union. Um, so there's a lot at stake here. And, you know, a subtle Labour argument could potentially bring back some of those 
voters. Now, we'll see um, yeah. in two days. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things that are interesting about what Labor proposes, including replacing the so-called Great Repeal Bill with an EU Rights and Protections Bill that will ensure that there are no changes to workers' rights or environmental protections. And I know you mm. brought up environmental protections as a huge issue when we last spoke. Mm. Do you think that's something that's quite compelling yeah, I think, um, you know, the argument that uh, Corbyn is making that Britain doesn't want to be a low-tax, low-wage offshore haven offshore uh, from the European continent has resonated. Uh, people are fearful um, and beginning to realise just how much they might be losing. Not only do they have to um, negotiate approximately 750 international treaties, uh, renegotiate with 160 countries. I mean, this is just mind-boggling. Mind- yeah. And something that the Conservatives simply weren't frank about, they probably actually didn't even know uh, the senior leadership that that would be the case. But in addition, yes, uh, all of these labour protections, um, the European Union has done quite a lot about protecting, for example, the quality of British beaches, which were pretty terrible when I first went to Britain um, in the early mid-1980s. Uh, a lot of them didn't meet WHO standards and, and so on. So the EU has been really important in terms of bringing up labour standard protection, um, although that's been an area of a op- so-called opt-out, but mm-hmm. in, particular, um, in particular environmental protection people are worried about this. Well, uh, I mean, we have spoken to uh, to Fiona Reynolds about the fight for beauty and she's one of the um, key people, uh, conservationists out there. She does err on the conservative side, um, but she very much, you know, this is part of the fabric of British culture is their their landscape and, uh, and their environment and it really is something which is part of their identity mm-hmm. um, and I think potentially would sway people more as an election issue, though it hasn't really been covered in great depth. But one of those key issues as well is fracking Um, and that uh, Jeremy Corbyn opposes fracking, but uh, that Theresa May would introduce it. Mm, Frack away. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, um, well, you know, she's, look, she's trying to appeal through an ad hoc um, menu of policies, uh, none of which are very clearly and deeply articulated to appeal to a range of quite different constituencies. So this is a very tricky election for her in many ways. There's a lot of people on the, you know, the so-called blue rinse conservative set, um, you know, the over 65s basically, who are the most loyal traditional Tory voters. They love their green space. They like taking, yeah. you know, getting out in their barber jackets and their, oh, yes. and their wellies, wellies on the weekend. In and Yorkshire? Traip- you know, traipsing. With the out. dog? Walker's rights. All, exactly, with the dog and walking stick. Um, so walker's rights and protecting that green space is really crucial. This is not a country um, that would vote for, for example, the policies that Donald Trump is pursuing and the Republican Party is pursuing. It's a very different uh, sentiment amongst uh, wide numbers of conservatives on environmental Environmental issues, and that is actually the, one of the most fascinating elements, I think, mm. of this whole campaign and the policy platforms they've put forward. Yeah, no one's pulling. No one wants to pull out of uh, the Paris Agreement in in the UK, at least, except for the loony right. Mm-mm. And let's also talk about austerity because you mentioned there that we have, or the UK has been under austerity for quite a while, yeah. and this has really um, solidified the disadvantage and actually increased the gap between um, the wor- most worse off people and you know the very well off top end of town. Yeah. And there is um, a little bit of a difference between Labor and the Conservatives uh, in terms of well, 
clearly the Tories um, are focused on balancing the budget, which is something we, of course, are quite obsessed with over here is this idea of at least not being in the black and then obviously looking towards a surplus, whereas Labor suggests that they would introduce a £250 billion stimulus package over 10 years. Mm. How very Keynesian. Yeah. Well, you know, it's needed. Um, yeah. You know, if you go to Britain, um, the infrastructure is not fantastic. It's not quite as bad as the United States. Um, but there's serious underinvestment. We've also got a massive productivity problem, uh, well, across the Western world. And in the UK, they've got it worst. So productivity in the UK has essentially stagnated since about 2005. So this is actually a plausible response to a real problem and a, and a deep-seated structural problem. Now, mm. um Labor would say that this is fully costed um, through increases in tax on the wealthy and on business. So essentially, there's a real alternative being offered here and, and one that's resonating. Theresa May's inter- she began the election, I think, or she began her prime ministership looking as though she understood the deep-seated causes of Brexit, which I think were fatigue with austerity um, and in effect ended up, you know, many of the cuts to the public services, the NHS, as we were talking about a bit earlier, and other core services, um, the deep unemployment, the the collapse in income. Um, mm. incomes and real, a cap on public sector wages. Absolutely. Real incomes are still lower today than they were um, at the peak before the crisis for most people in the UK, uh, not necessarily at the very top end. So there's um, deep-seated anxiety about economic future, about the state of public services in Britain, and I think that drove effectively what was a protest vote. Now, they blamed it on the wrong actor, the EU, rather than on David Cameron's Conservative Party, which was the author of austerity, and I I think it was unnecessary austerity. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was scare stories about Britain becoming the next Greece and so on, and a bond market revolt, that none of which was ever plausible, and there was no evidence for this, but they used that effectively to ram through an unnecessarily punitive austerity policy, which is now coming home to roost. And May, I think, calculated, along with Linton Crosby, that that strong and stable, we'll get the best Brexit deal would be sufficient to push those anxieties aside. And I think that's not the case. No. And I mean, we look at some of the polling and uh about 49% of voters think that the NHS is one of the biggest issues this election. Mm. Whether that is the case remains to be seen because as we've just discussed, there are many components of this. Mm. But as you say, services and essential services have been cut and the NHS, uh, which is, I guess, the UK's version of um, Medicare and the public hospital system, really is under threat and has been for quite a long time. Um, And we've seen, you know, uh, huge disagreements between the minister and junior doctors and their conditions and pay. I mean, where are we at with the NHS? And do you think that Labor is offering a significant um, alternative in terms of their approach to it? Yeah, so the NHS is often seen as the crown jewel of uh, the British welfare state and the Beveridge uh, report in 1942 and and so on that established the NHS. NHS. It's different uh, from the Australian system in that it's free at the point of access uh, traditionally and there's been a lot of debate about whether they might have to charge more for doctor's visits and so on. So it is an incredible system that I think, uh, and again, you know, large swathes of the Conservative uh, vote too, are very proud of and wish to protect. Um, Now, so again, Corbyn is, uh, this is a very resonant argument here that we need to protect 
um, the NHS, not just through funding, but also through immigration. Uh, so remember the, the extreme dependence of the NHS on imported nurses, above all from the West Indies, Africa and elsewhere. Um, these are under threat by Theresa May's pledge that she will finally uh, meet these very stringent, you know, uh, uh, targets for uh, reducing immigration. Um, so there's a so this plays into the migration debate as well, um, and Corbyn is you know signalling very strongly that he won't uh, or that although he wishes uh, to reduce the amount of net Im- uh, migration into Britain, uh, that he wouldn't allow this to threaten um, you know vital public services like the NHS. Mm. And I mean we've also seen. Um Theresa May come out uh, and done a bit of a backtrack on something called a so-called dementia tax, (laughs) an attack on pensioners. (laughs) Um, What really was she she putting forward and why did she even do it in the first place? I have no idea what genius came up with this. Yeah. Whether it was Linton Crosby. Certainly Lin- has a ring to it, doesn't Sir it? Sir Linton, I guess we should say. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, um, uh, you know, attacking the core t- traditional blue rinse Tory vote, you know, the over 65s who always turn up and vote, by the way. Um, yes. Uh, and that that's, a, that's an issue that maybe we should discuss quickly. Yes. But, um, uh, you know, essentially this so-called dementia tax was uh, or would have forced um, uh, retirees uh, uh, basically needing uh, end-of-age care uh, to yes. dip into their housing equity um, and potentially to lose their house and therefore not be able to pass it on to their children and so yeah. on. So this was seen as an attack on citizen wealth and, uh, you know, and, and particularly hitting hard uh, the older people who vote uh, in large numbers for the Absolutely. Conservatives. Well, the asset test was really um, £100,000. Yeah, not I a mean, lot. That is nothing in yeah. the UK. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, difficult to think. I mean, except in, you know, the extreme far north and in very deprived yes. parts of the inner cities, you you know, you couldn't, uh, you could, you know, wouldn't be enough for a deposit in most places <laughs> in London. No, not even close. No. Um, but, you know, it is about six days out from the election and she's put forward some just this amazing... Well, Ridiculous. You know, she did a U-turn. Uh, she had to do a U-turn yeah. uh, on this proposal. So very embarrassing. So, Usually. you know, going back to Thatcher, this lady's not for turning. Well, it seems that uh, Theresa May is. So, uh, you know, it immediately undermined the strong and stable, you know, steady hand of the Conservatives. Yes, yeah, uh, so you know what you can expect. Yeah. So, you know, the more people see of Theresa May, um, what we've seen over the last 10 days is the polls, um, you know, indicating that people, and particularly on leadership, um, uh, you know, satisfaction with the two leaders, uh, the two main leaders, Theresa May, the more people see of her, the less impressed they are. And that's Mm. a real problem. It is a real problem. Um, I want to just see if I can play a little bit of a clip from um, a Labor ad. I won't play it in full, but it just brings out the messaging around these key issues Mm. around austerity and also a move by Labor to bring in some really socialist um, language into this discussion. So bear with me. I'm just going to see if I can make it work here. We know we live in a land with riches for all. We know the health worker and firefighter contribute no less than the stockbroker and merchant banker. We know there is no chief executive or shareholder value without the worker. We know that wealth, privilege and power are carved up in obscene fashion. We have had enough. We have had enough. 
We've had enough. We demand health, work, home, education and care in time of need. Not subject to grand profiteering, but planned, transparent, executed in efficient fashion under democratic control. Using our intelligence and imagination. We demand the full fruits of our labour. We demand the right to contribute and recognised obligation to share. Power concedes nothing without demand. It never did and it never will. We have one short, precious life. We demand a chance to be all that we can. I mean, is that not the most amazing turnaround in messaging that you've ever heard for a progressive party? Yeah, incredible. And what it signals is, um, you know, so what we're seeing here is the demise of neoliberalism in Britain. Britain has been at the very forefront since Thatcher was elected in 1979, at the forefront of this neoliberal wave uh, in Western politics. And Britain, um, Britain's welfare state policies, its labour market deregulation, its financial deregulation above all, the epitome of this, um, is increasingly called into question, not only by Labour. So let's remember that May herself um, has effectively signalled um, a drift away from neoliberalism and reviving old notions of industrial policy, which were central to Conservative Party doctrine in the 50s and 60s, um, a, a country that works for all, reviving old notions of so-called one-nation Toryism. But it's tentative. And this is an area where, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has some real uh, credibility, but mm. Theresa May and, you know, a lot of voters must be thinking, gosh, these people were talking a very different tune just you know, a year ago. So, you know, how deep is this shift? Well, he's really just put all his cards on the table there. Yeah. And and that discussion around power and control and yeah. demand and the worker, I mean, this is very much a, a social democracy discussion from yeah. much, much before. It is, and, and possibly a social democracy discussion for the future. So this is giving, you know, we've we had Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign um, last year in, in the United States, which resonated among surprisingly large numbers of people. Some people th even think that he might have won yes, uh, had he beat uh, Hillary Clinton for the nomination. So we're, we're living in very interesting times. We see in France Emmanuel Macron um, you know, very much in the centre and still very much aligned with that neoliberal deregulatory agenda but of course France is in a very different place to Britain. Much larger welfare state in many ways back where Britain was when Thatcher came into power. Britain however has been through a pretty extreme 30 years in which the Labour Party under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown embraced the core principles of Thatcherism. Mm. And now I think that's coming home to roost not only for the Labour Party but also uh, even for the Conservatives. So this is very interesting times and I suspect Britain actually could once again become a trendsetter in politics. I'm not predicting a Labour victory. No. But I think Corbyn's going to do a lot better than anyone thought. Yeah. Well, he's going to do a huge ago. amount of damage at yeah. least to their the the level of majority that they could have. Mm. Um, let's just quickly talk about what will happen potentially. I mean, you you did reference the vote and this, as we know, it's not compulsory. People don't have to vote. Yeah. And as we saw with Brexit, younger people didn't get out to vote in the numbers that they should have. Yeah. Um, and 
and you've also uh, mentioned off air that it's changed over time so that the youth vote was fairly comparable to um, other age brackets. What do you think is going to happen if the youth don't turn out? I mean, Labor is clearly going to struggle. Yeah. But if, they, if this is energising enough, do you think that they have a shot at minority government. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we just don't know because the polls uh, traditionally in Britain, um, particularly over the last three decades, (laughs) have been terrible. Not that Um, accurate. So, yeah, uh, there's a deep degree of uncertainty. So what we can say is what we've seen on average is about a 10% swing over since the time that the election was announced, only three weeks ago, towards Labor. And that's nothing that either side, uh, indeed any side in politics, expected. Now, what we don't... So what's underlying that swing? It's the youth vote, which has increasingly been mobilised, or I should say the youth sentiment, because we don't yet know whether they will vote uh, in favour of Labour, about 70% of under-25s. Um, in favour of Labour and women, interestingly, shifting away from May and towards Corbyn. Now, um, the crucial thing is that, as you say, in the Brexit vote particularly, but not only that, in the previous five or so elections, the youth vote collapsed compared to where it was uh, up until about the 1970s. What we don't know, so many many uh, under-25s regret, of course, not having turned up to vote now uh, in yes, Brexit. Yes, absolutely. We also know that the polling um, has adjusted Um, because they're trying to deal with all of these past failures to predict the outcome. All we can say, I think, um, and, you know, Nate Silver's 538 um, side is something I read from time to time. His view is that basically what we're at is the Conservatives are ahead by 7% and the error is plus or minus 10%. So we could end Mm. up, um, we could end up either with a Tory landslide or with a Labour Party minority government. And it's fascinating yeah. and exciting is, <laughs> at the same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you, Andrew. It's just been uh, wonderful to traverse the, the many issues that are facing the UK at the, at the moment. Um, I can't wait to see what happens on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. let's see. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Yeah. That. That was Professor Andrew Walter, Interim Director at the Melbourne School of Government. And... Uh, absolute expert on the UK election. Um, We're going to be watching this very closely and uh, we'll certainly cover the fallout next week so uh, we can give you an update on what occurred. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and we have with us on the phone uh, from the Progress 2017 conference, uh, Dr John Falzon, who's CEO of St Vincent de Paul Society in Australia, commonly also known as Vinnie's. Um, Thank you so much, John, for joining us. Lovely to be here, Amy. It's so good to have you because uh, when we see major political announcements and policy issues come up, you are one of the um, really the people who cut through, uh, particularly on Twitter, but also in the media, in terms of really bringing it home as to what um, these policies do and how they impact the most disadvantaged. And what I'm interested in uh, now is is your participation at Progress 2017, which is at the Melbourne Town Hall today and tomorrow. Um, you'll be taking part in a panel which is really looking at what a good society is in Australia. Um, and I'm really intrigued about this idea and I, I would like to have a bit of a, a big sky 
discussion about what it could be, what we could be, and perhaps that is moving towards um, something new, or is it pulling, um, you know, elements from the past? But first of all, I'd like to ask, you know, to you, um, what what are the core elements of a good society? Um, great question. If I could just start by saying, at the moment, uh, you, you could describe the way our society is structured as being based on the principle of uh, to those who have much, more will be given. Mm. And from those who have nothing, even the little they have will be taken away. So that's what we're seeing, for instance, in decisions like cutting penalty rates or cutting social security benefits for our for people on the lowest incomes at the same time as giving a whacking big $65 billion tax cut to the corporations. So that's a really warped, uh, uh, inhuman principle. What I'd like to see, and and I'm not alone, obviously I'm just speaking as an ordinary member of the massive and beautiful collective movement for social justice and social change. And what, what I think it's fair to say we believe in is a society that's built on the principle of, um, of from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. It's as simple as that. It's, it's you know, it, it's not highly theoretical. Um, it's radical, but it's so common sense. It's so simple. It's so human. Uh, and it resonates with... Uh, with people because they can see the the fairness of it. Well, it does strike me as particularly common sense in in a time that really lacks common sense and evidence-based policy. Uh, And, you know, there have been discussions around the fact that politicians should be um, representing all of their electorates and not uh, just vested interests. And we've seen, you know, the rise of um, the lobbyist even more and more in recent years. I mean, just how far removed are we? Because we started out uh, with... Well, we didn't start out necessarily, but we did have a very, one one might say, a golden period of social democracy or at least a contract whereby there was an understanding that government did have a positive role to play in people's lives and that they should uh, redistribute wealth fairly and also um, ensure that those who are being left behind are picked back up and um, and able to you know, participate as much as they are able, as you say, each to according to their ability and need. I mean, how much farther are we away from that social democratic um, time and should we be going back to that formula? I actually think we need to move beyond that formula, um, as uh, as strange as that might sound. I think the social democratic um, spirit was a very fine spirit because it did all of those things that you've just described of trying to um, ensure a redistributionist um, framework within a market-based system. But what we've seen is um, the, the market has very much taken control. And it's not as if government has withdrawn. Government has actually not just gotten out of the way. Government has played a positive... Uh, well, I don't, I, I don't mean um, in a value no. sense, but in a, in, a, in a very assertive sense, um, it's played a role in doing everything it can to enhance profits at the expense of people. And this is the neoliberal trajectory uh, summed up neatly, that, you know, government actively intervenes on behalf of markets instead of on behalf of people. 
whereas the social democratic model is really government intervening in markets to do what markets cannot do, and that is to ensure that everyone has a right to those essentials of life, like a place to live, a place to work and a place to learn. So I think we actually need to move beyond. I think we need to move to a, a, a complete reconfiguration of, um, of how we view economy and society. And uh, I'm very excited about what comes next because clearly the market-based system is eating itself from within. It's, it's, uh, it's you know, rotten to the core, uh, at its heart, is not exploitation and exclusion as an exception, but exploitation and exclusion as the rule. And, uh, you know, we see that within Australian society, but more to the point, we see it at the heart of the global economy. Absolutely. And that point you make there uh, is completely um, correct in the sense that social democracy was responding to a neoliberal ideology, which clearly is being dismantled. And uh, the interview we've just had previously has been discussing the UK election. And we've seen uh, Labor move substantially to the left through Jeremy Corbyn. And the, the language around that has very much been about the worker. Um, and it is to moving towards a new way of doing politics, whether it's sustained or not is another question. But in the Australian context, um, looking at completely reshaping or remodelling um, a, new, a new way of doing things, what might that be that's different from social democracy? I know it's really difficult to say when, when we don't actually have, you know, a solid foundation yeah. yet to build that upon. But, I mean, what would some of the elements that you think in, in your role and the real issues that you see, what do you think could make the biggest impact? Oh, look, I think we have to walk away from the idolatry of the market. I mean, at the moment, it's like a, a religious orthodoxy that you can't question the dominance of the market of market forces as the as the means by which all social policy, all economic policy is determined by these golden rules of, you know, whoever has gold makes the rules in essence. And so you've got the absurd situation, for example, of of, of billionaires dictating how people on unemployment benefits um, should be made to spend their meagre incomes. I mean, for crying out loud, I mean, you, you can't think of something more surreal than someone who's extraordinarily rich preaching to someone who's extraordinarily poor on how they should live. Uh, so, you know, we need to walk away from, from this blind idolatry of market forces and very simply uh, listen to the people on the ground experience oppression of any sort on the basis of class, on the basis of gender, on the basis of race, whatever the case may be, these are the people to whom all of us who stand in solidarity with them must listen to and learn from. You know, you look at history, Amy, the history of all social change has, it, it indicates that, that all progressive social change is achieved, is won by the people on the ground under the guiding stars of struggle and hope. You think of any of the great social reforms in Australia, they weren't won uh, in Parliament. They might have been legislated in Parliament. They might have been uh, formulated by um, progressive members of the bureaucracy, but they were won by ordinary people, often taking to the streets, often breaking unjust laws, uh, you know, in order to uh, 
to, for us to move forward historically to uh, to a better kind of society. I couldn't agree more. And, I mean, you're picking up there on a great deal of paternalism and condescension that exists currently between those who have and those who don't. And, I mean, it's just some examples to, to I guess, draw out yours is that, um, you know, we often see that, uh, that people in business have been advocating for GST increases, which disproportionately affect uh, those at the bottom as well and, you know, suggest that they, they can't understand why the GST hasn't been increased. I mean, this, these are kind of, it highlights the disconnect, the real true disconnect between um, experiences of Australians. How do we bridge that disconnect? Um, you know, it, does it need to be, to be um, slowly, slowly, or is there another way to really disrupt it? Oh, that's a great question. I, I actually think, you know, a lot has been said about speaking truth to power as if it's those who are powerful in the current system that need convincing. I actually don't agree. I, I, don't, I, I don't care, to be frank, about influencing the, those who hold unjust power in the current system. The real power lies with ordinary people thinking and acting collectively. Uh, you know, there's that beautiful Indigenous Brazilian saying that when we dream alone, it is only a dream. But when we dream together, it is the beginning of reality. So when I, when, when I think about speaking truth to power, I think about us speaking the truth to each other and sharing our truth, sharing our experience concretely and analysing the concrete conditions and then determining what the future will look like um, you know, you, you think about the people who are alienated and atomised and made to feel that they are experiencing their pain alone and that neoliberal um, mythology that they are in fact to blame for their own exclusion. People experiencing homelessness, people experiencing violent family violence, uh, people experiencing exploitation or har sexual harassment in the workplace... Um, they're often made to feel that they're alone and that, that, that um, they are somehow to blame, that they've brought it on themselves. Certainly we hear from the government that kind of nonsense, that if you are unemployed, you only have yourself to blame and nothing could be further from the truth. But when people start sharing their stories, uh, something very new and exciting happens and, uh, and that's the next step. Uh, you know, there's that beautiful line from Pablo Casals, the, the, um, the cellist, you know, um, the, you know, the situation is hopeless. Let us take the next step. Well, I agree with the second bit, but I don't actually think the situation is hopeless. I'm, I'm filled with hope, inspired by ordinary people who don't give up, who, uh, who have nothing but that tiny nugget of hope in their pockets. And, and I know that you know these people well um, as well and that's something which uh, gives me hope because you're speaking from deep experience. Um, what is disturbing is this, you know, this blaming that you're talking about in terms of those who are um, requiring support from government uh, and the, the introduction of this pilot drug test um, for those who are on welfare. I mean, we're moving to a point where... Um, where welfare recipients are almost becoming criminalised in the way, the language that we use about them. It couldn't be, as you say, further from the truth. Um, 
when we're sharing these stories um, and really relating and understanding the situation, which I'm sure is what will be happening at Progress 2017 today and tomorrow, do you think that um, one of the aims will be to reach some form of consensus or is this the point of debate with a, a future look towards having having a grassroots consensus view that could be put forward and, and um, I guess, campaigned around? Um, another fantastic question. Um, I think there is already a broad consensus on what is wrong and what needs to change. I think there's an absolute diversity of views on how we get there. There's a diversity of experiences, and that diversity is beautiful and should be celebrated. Um, you know, equality doesn't mean sameness. Uh, diversity is something that we need to completely respect and honour. So there will be debate, and I think that's, that is grassroots democracy, is people debating, disagreeing, sharing extraordinarily different perspectives and respectfully listening to each other. Um, you know, the, the means is as important as the end. Uh, any notion that you can impose from, the, from above a just society is already inherently flawed because the moment you speak about imposing something from above is the moment you disempower. Uh, and, uh, you know, democracy means people listening to each other, struggling together, sharing solidarity. You know, that beautiful sense of uh, solidarity is the tenderness of the people, as the Sandinistas uh, were fond of saying. Uh, I think that has to be the heart of the movement. It's going to be a long haul, uh, all struggles for justice are long, but uh, it is something that uh, is not an option. It's, it's, it, this is a necessity uh, for those who are suffering extreme demonisation and, as you quite correctly point out, criminalisation uh, for being poor, for bearing the brunt of inequality. Uh, for these people, um, change is not a luxury. Change is a necessity. Indeed, and it really is flipping the pyramid, so to speak, um, and bringing the grassroots and putting that at the top and as the majority in terms of the movement and momentum behind change. I mean, is this really about those um, yourself and other active campaigners um, to really start talking to everyone else, all the other Australians about these issues and showing that um, there is a, a collective responsibility and a collective humanity that needs to be respected and upheld in in the face of this um, legacy of neoliberalism. Yes, we must, we must indeed speak with each other and claim that sense that everything is connected to everything else. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a very simple, uh, it sounds obvious, but it's the very thing that we of, often are blind to because we're so wrapped up with our own struggles, with our own causes, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to be very much open to the truth that every, every struggle, every form of oppression is connected to every other form of oppression and every other struggle for justice. And uh, that's why coming together... Uh, at events such as Progress 2017 is so important. They are not the end, but they are an important means. In, indeed. And one thing I, I would like to just draw out um, around that 
usually the top part of the pyramid, the parliamentarians and those with um, power, direct power to, to make these changes. Do you think the two major parties who have been hemorrhaging their primary votes over a period of time now are at risk of being left behind or becoming irrelevant when we see this kind of grassroots collective um, action and campaigning emerging? Uh, look, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think, um, you know, the Australian political system is indeed a, a two-party system. I think that people have to work out their own paths as to how they wish to be politically active. Politics isn't what happens in Parliament House alone, but, uh, you know, that is indeed a, a uh, an important vehicle for legislative change and we shouldn't ignore it. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, there is a, a very valid... Um, there, there's a, a valid reason why people wish to engage uh, in um, formal party politics. Uh, I think that's a, a completely legitimate pathway. I think the union movement is an extraordinarily important vehicle for collective activism and social change, not just in the workplace but within society. I think the flowering of uh, NGOs and civil society organisations and uh, campaigns uh, are also an extraordinarily important part of the mosaic. And so people have to find, I guess, what suits them, uh, what their story takes them towards, and often it will be uh, a, a bit of everything. Uh, or sometimes uh, they will find that, that you know, there is one vehicle that really consumes their time and their passion. And, uh, I mean, we do need people with individual passions about various issues as well. I mean, not everyone will be an expert or, or passionate about every single issue. Um, it's it's great to see that uh, this whole conference really is around galvanising those various aspects of the, of the community and bringing them together to, to start this discussion. Um, as you say, there is somewhat of a broad consensus and it has been developing over time certainly unsurprisingly in response to you know a range of policy developments that have arisen over the last five or so years such as the GP co-payment and new start uh, remaining horribly low I mean if just um, to sum it up I guess if you could make immediate changes do you think there are any particular policy proposals that um would have cut through and that should and could make a huge difference to those disadvantaged that you are working with and seeing on a daily basis? Oh, well, I think I would start by ensuring that our revenue base is, uh, is, is, is uh, you know, firmly grounded on a, on a very progressive principle of, you know, from each according to their ability, that the corporations and that the high-wealth individuals actually pay their share. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, I would make sure that that revenue is used to guarantee that everyone, without exception, from the First Nations peoples to the most recent arrivals seeking refuge in our country and everyone in between, that no one is left out from those essentials of life, such as a place to live, a place to work for those who can work, and uh, income adequacy for those who cannot, that uh, you know, caring, uh, unpaid work is recognised and supported, uh, that uh, people have a place to learn uh, with complete universal free access from early childhood education 
through school education right through to university and TAFE, um, that um, health um, is indeed determined by all of those things, including cultural enjoyment and respect and dignity, uh, but also that, of course, everyone is has access to um, to high-quality universal health care. Now, these are the essentials. These are the building blocks of a fair society. Uh, these are what make us feel human and feel equally respected. Uh, I think I think that that would be a pretty decent place to start, Amy. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. It's an essential place to start. As you say, it's a need, not a want or a, an option. Uh, John, you are an inspiration to all of us here. Uh, thank you very much for articulating your vision and uh, and those around your, your vision so uh, beautifully. And I can't wait to hear how this all progresses at Progress. You're very kind, Amy, and thank you for your wonderful questions. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was uh, Dr. John Falzon. Uh, he's the CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society of Australia. And uh, he is on Twitter if you want to follow him. He always has um, the most important and beautiful things to say. And uh, uh, one of his quotes that I particularly love and which sums up our discussion is that we should resist the politics of cruelty and replace it with the politics of love. You are listening to 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. This is Uncommon Sense. And as I promised, we have Dr. Sarah Bolter on the line and uh, she joins us from the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility where she is a research fellow. And um, and Sarah is going to be speaking at the UN. Association uh, Climate Collaboration Forum tomorrow um, and there's a, a really interesting panel uh, where we'll, they will be discussing land management and, and ways to adapt and collaborate in terms of the development of climate change in Australia and its impact on the land and the land's impact on the climate. So thank you Sarah for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's great to have you here because, uh, as I said on the in the break just before that uh, announcement, that we really um, we do tend to talk about solar panels and green spaces and um, uh, lots of wonderful things which are extremely important, um, you know, in the city. But we often don't consider the other aspects of climate change and ad- adaptation that are really critical and that do contribute a great deal to emissions. And one of those being agriculture in Australia. Um, and there's some interesting stats in terms of its contribution um, to our emissions. And uh, and there are it is quite significant if you look at the breakdown. We have um, the last stats that that were available: thirty six percent from electricity, fourteen percent from transport. But interestingly, higher than transport, fifteen percent is agriculture. Um, in terms of agriculture and and its impact in terms of rising emissions, I mean, what is it about agriculture that has created or made it such a huge chunk of that emissions um, output? Yeah, I think we I think we don't really recognise that um, a lot of what we do on the land emits some of those 
um, greenhouse gases. So, I mean, the key contributors are things like our ruminant animals, the cattle and the sheep, and, and to put it bluntly, it's their belching and farting that, that <laughs> puts, meth- puts methane into the atmosphere. And, and we, we tend to think about carbon dioxide as the greenhouse gas uh, that's the biggest problem, and it is a big problem. But uh, methane gas can actually be, um, in terms of the amount in the atmosphere, can actually be a more detrimental greenhouse gas than carbon. So that's coming from our animals. But then we also, um, I guess, um, in developing Australia for agriculture, we've also cleared a lot of vegetation. We know that vegetation is really important for locking carbon, not only into the plant materials themselves, but also in, in putting carbon into soils. So so the soil is also another um, great place for carbon store. And every time we disturb the soil, whether that's clearing vegetation, whether it's through clearing paddocks for um, cropping or whether it's through erosion, for example, we're disturbing that soil and we're releasing more of that carbon into the atmosphere. So there's a whole host of little ways that um, agriculture contributes to emissions. But it's also, if, we, if not just on the land, it's also how we produce our food and transport our food. So what we also tend not to think about is, um, you know, so, something like 60% of Australia's uh, agricultural produce is exported overseas. Well, that's a lot of um, greenhouse emissions just in transporting that food and transporting that food around Australia and we have an expectation that we can have lovely fresh food and not necessarily seasonal food and we use a lot of carbon in um, moving that food around as well. We absolutely do, and as you mentioned there, um, the the gas from <laughs> from livestock accounts for about sixty six percent of that uh, agricultural gas emissions, and then you're saying there the soil at fifteen percent. Um, in terms of farmers and their engagement uh, on this issue and their their part to play what where are we at in that discussion with farmers and the types of things that they're doing because i do know of individual farms that that do do a lot to to kind of um, put vegetation back onto their properties for example um we chatted um, with a a particular farmer um i think it was about three months ago now um and they're based in fish creek and their land had been hugely cleared so they've um, planted thousands and thousands more trees to um, bring it back and that also you know prevents erosion and that kind of thing but you know what are some of the things that um, that farmers are doing and what's the general response that you'll get when you're talking about adaptation and these ways of improving things? Yeah, look, I think there's a whole host of things going on and, and I guess it makes it quite a complex area to talk about. So, I mean, reforestation is an important thing that, that a lot of farmers are doing and it's policy um, levers that help encourage that. So, you know, so the governments have put some investment in encouraging carbon farming and, and carbon capture, although that's a really moving policy piece. So, so, I mean, there's some drivers in that. Individual farmers, as you say, are recognising the value of doing this, but it's not just focusing on, on reducing our carbon emissions, but it's also about farming practice that's sustainable and adaptable for climate change. So um, our farmers are incredibly good at dealing with a variable climate, but we are hearing from them saying that 
it's not just the sort of like twos of fro with normal climate variability. They are really starting to feel some of the pinch of some of the more permanent changes that we expect to to see with climate change. I was in Western Australia last week and um, the farmers over there, the wheat farmers are saying, you know, we're really seeing, you know, with water, the change in the water availability, they're having to start think about changing their practices. So, so there's a few things going on. So practices are changing in response to that climate and response to policies. So farmers are doing things like um, uh, um, no-till cropping is is um, become a really sort of the practice that most most um, croppers practice now, and that just means that instead of disturbing the soil and releasing carbon, we're leaving some of that organic matter on the soil and letting that that absorb into the soil. Um, as you say, planting trees, which offers um, shelter and protection for livestock um, in hotter conditions. It also can help increase, improve pastures. So there's a whole host of things that farmers are actually doing that are contributing to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but are also tackling um, some of the other issues that they're facing in terms of the challenges that climate change um, are, are sort of forcing upon them, I guess. Yeah, and we know that um, in general farmers do it tough in terms of trying to make a decent living from farming and agriculture in general, uh, and certainly dairy farming is one of those those areas. Um, but we talk a lot about uh, drought as well, and we've we've had droughts, um, really significant droughts in the past. Is that one of the aspects that you think um, is of current concern or future concern in terms of uh, how farmers are, are currently managing water availability? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, drought is a massive driver for a lot of farmers. And when we talk about climate change with a lot of rural communities, they say, look, you know, climate change and the concern about those things is it's sort of almost a multiplier of existing problems. So, I mean, drought is something that farmers can look back in history and say, look, this is this is something we've dealt with but when you get worsening droughts added to increasing market pressures um, changes in global markets changes in technology increasing demands for production you know there's a whole host of things that are happening that go together with drought and make them incredibly difficult for farmers to to deal with it it changes the it has to change the way we practice farming um, if it's if we continue if we're able to continue to be sustainable in our farming Indeed, and farmers, uh, you know, given that the, it's basically often in a, a rural area, are quite isolated themselves, and we've seen, um, you know, mental health play an issue in terms of their um, as a factor in this and in their businesses as well, because it, it does take its toll. These kind of struggles, and it's one of those impacts which um, that the your organisation in particular has um, raised in some of your case studies. I mean, what are some of the policy tools that the federal government and state governments should be putting in place that they may not be at the moment in terms of supporting farmers to adapt? You do mention that there are some good things already happening in terms of government encouraging um, planting more trees, but what really do you think has been missing so far from the, the policy landscape? I think there's probably, I think the biggest thing that's missing, and it's possibly one of the biggest challenges, is that we need to have a really holistic approach to how we think about farming and rural communities and climate change, you know. So so I mentioned before that, you know, uh, climate change and drought can be a real sort of multiplier of existing pressures. So we need to be able to have some policies in place that give, um, I guess, allow farmers to build their resilience. So so maybe greater flexibility in financial or, or taxing arrangements, you know, so you're going to have your good years and your bad years. How do we support 
the appropriate investment for building resilience and building adaptive capacity. Um, how do we make sure that regulations in one part of one arm of government that impact on, on farmers and agriculture aren't pushing backward attempts to adapt to climate change? So I think, you know, there's, I think what we're really missing is that broader conversation about the fact that um, farming isn't just farming, it's part of social fabric, it's part of um, global, it's how we trade, it's how we export, it's part of the economy. So that has to be a big part of the conversation with climate change added to the conversation. Um, And I guess we need to be giving support to our farmers. You talked about mental health and I think climate change was sort of... Well, I mean, mental health is always a challenge for regional and remote communities and farmers are a big part of that. So how do we provide support when we're expecting them to not only face existing challenges, but there are increasing challenges and farming is one of the more climate vulnerable industries that we have in Australia. And we, you know, we, we expect to make money from that and we expect to have food on our plate. So, so what can we offer in return to try and help support farmers in, in tackling some of those challenges? Absolutely. And I mean, farming and agriculture is a significant um, proportion of our market and our exports. I mean, just how much um, is it critical to the Australian economy at the moment? Well, um, in terms of what we're exporting, I think about 12% of our GDP comes from industries that are exposed to climate change. So that includes agriculture, forestry, but also fishing and tourism. So so there is a significant proportion of our um, economic well-being that relies on these very climate-sensitive industries. And there's also, I mean, some kind of issues that have arisen recently around um, our food bowls and the sustainability of them into the future, um, and particularly the Liverpool Plains and, you know, many campaigns around uh, those who are opposed to coal mining near food bowls where, um, you know, there are, there's really fertile soil um, and that really critical work does happen there. Uh, where are we at currently in the... Australian electorates, I guess, expectations of agriculture and Australia's ability to feed itself because it seems as if even our our cultural capital and expectations of agriculture and farmers is quite significant. Mm, absolutely. I mean, you know, like I, I guess the thing is we're a nation that's growing and, and we're a fairly wealthy nation and so we have an expectation that, you know, we will always have... I mean, there's never a question in Australia that we'll go hungry. Um, you know, that's not something that ever crosses our psyche. I mean, we might have the odd crisis where bananas cost $10 a kilo through a climate event like a cyclone um, or a disease and, you know, that's that's largely inconvenient more than anything else. And so I think there's probably probably um, an underestimation of, of uh, the value that we receive from, from agricultural industries in Australia. You know, that expectation is always that we will have food security. And we have an expectation that we'll, if we can't produce in Australia, we'll be able to import it. And in fact, if we're not only if we can't produce in Australia, if we can't produce it cheap enough, we'll import it. So there really is sort of almost a sense of... I guess privilege and we're we're all guilty of this you know we always the the food is always going to be there as far as we're concerned so maybe there's a bit of an um, underestimation of of the vulnerability of of our agricultural sector I mean we're not going to run out of we're not going to stop producing food but we might have to um, accept the fact that you know our consumption patterns may have to change and um, 
you know, the quality of our produce might change or what we can expect to be produced might change. Um, and, and as it becomes more difficult for farmers to cope with increasing pressures, you know, there will be farmers that will, will um, get out of farming. And, you know, what, what are the implications of that on, our, on, on what we can find at our local supermarket? Well, you use, lose a huge uh, amount of expertise and, and family investment because they're often family businesses. I think it's sometimes easy, isn't it, if it's out of sight and out of mind in terms of where it comes from, we can just assume that it will always be there or to the same standard. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if you saw the, the ABC show recently, The War on Waste, but it was very sad to see so many good bananas chucked out because it didn't meet the strict standards of the supermarkets. Um, you yeah. know, it's just quite nonsensical, really, that we, we're almost shooting ourselves in the foot, aren't we, when we've put so, yeah. much, so much resources into these, including water resources and emissions mm. intensity into this, this process of producing bananas, for example, and then we chuck them out and create more uh, emissions. I mean, is that one of the other components? Because I do know that waste is a part of that uh, makeup, yeah. which agriculture is part of. Do you think that, um, that waste reduction has improved? or could is there room, more room for improvement? Oh, look, I think there's massive rooms for improvement and I think the thing is if we're talking about how we're going to reduce emissions from agriculture, there's things that can be done on the farm and I think we probably have a, an expectation that our farmers should be doing that and, and farmers are for their own reasons. You know, if there are policy incentives to reducing emissions, they're working on that, their own sense of responsibility, but also their own, the sustainability of their own practices. And as we learn that some of these emission-reducing practices can improve um, productivity and have an economic ben- benefit, farmers will take it up. But on the demand side, um, us as consumers, there's a lot that we can be doing to reduce to reduce emissions. And and food waste is a huge part of that. You know, if we if we're not uh, wasting food that's, that's, you know, taking all these resource, resources to produce, then we, we are um, having an impact on, on how much we emit. Um, but also things like food miles, you know, how far does our food have to travel? I mean, they're the little things that we tend to think, oh, you know, it's this sort of greeny philosophy about, you know, it, it, I guess it's sort of the greeny privilege to say we should reduce our food miles and we need to compost and maybe we could reduce how much meat we eat and things like that. But actually those... Some of those things actually do, or most of those things actually do, have very um, concrete impact on, on the emissions that we produce. And I guess in turn, you know, if we're reducing our waste and reducing our emissions, we're also improving the, the productivity and sustainability of our fam- farming um, families and lands as well. We definitely are. And it reminds me of the, the really excellent farmers markets that are available to those in the city who really would like to actually meet their farmers and get to know them and support them and um, buy the vegetables that aren't necessarily perfect looking, but are, well, they actually taste like vegetables, which is also <laughs> positive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sometimes even taste better. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely they do. Mine do. Um, yeah, I have my favourite farmer at the Carlton Farmers Market. Um, and we, we've got to know each other really well. And it's true that, uh, you know, they, they're based just around Ballarat. So um, he's reducing his miles by meeting people uh, a little bit closer to where it's convenient for them. But, you know, it, the benefits are for everyone. Um, just yeah. in terms of this panel um, that's coming up and, and your participation yep. tomorrow, 
What do you hope to be some of the, I guess, outcomes of that discussion? Um, and what do you think might um, be the next steps that, that those attending the conference will collectively take together? Uh, is that the aim of it? Yeah, so and the, the hope with the conference is that we will produce, I guess, some uh, points of reference and recommendation about how Australia might work towards net zero emissions. I mean, that's the key aim of the forum. But in terms of the workshop we're running, which is looking at agricultural as well as um, forestry and other land use that produces, um, you know, such a significant proportion of our um, greenhouse gas emissions in Australia... Uh, from my mind, I mean, I think that there's plenty of scientific evidence out there about um, ways that we can sort of drip feed into reducing our emissions. There's, you know, a couple of dozen concrete things that we could talk about today that reduce emissions. I think for the panel, it's really about talking about who are the right people to be having these discussions. We can't just expect farmers to take on board the need to reduce emissions um, themselves solely. So it's about getting the right people. And it's about looking strategically at some of those sort of holistic um, questions of how we can reduce emissions. What are the barriers? Is there policy and legislation that's making it particularly difficult? Do we are we sort of driving strategic directions for some aspect of, of say economic development or or trade or export, which really is a barrier to us reducing emissions in these sectors? So it's really about, I guess, getting some of those, trying to get some of those high level strategic um, government. Um, policy-based uh, questions sort of discussed about by those who know the best in the industry to try and come with some solutions that we might be able to say to the government and to, to um, industry, look, here are some of the critical things that really need to be dealt with and overcome if we're going to support our farmers and our, our land managers to try and help reduce emissions. And as you say, have a holistic policy approach uh, and make sure that we're counting in those other areas of policy that really impact farmers um, because they are really critical to Australia. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And Sarah, I would love to thank you for joining us. It's been really eye-opening and um, important to have these discussions and I wish you all the best for tomorrow. Thanks, Amy. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the chat today. My pleasure. That was Dr. Sarah Bolter, and uh, she's an expert in this field. She's a research fellow at the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility, and she's speaking at the UN Climate Collaboration Forum tomorrow, June 7. Uh, you can look that up, and um, if you just Google UN Climate Collaboration Forum, there's a whole range of topics to be discussed there. Hope to see you again next time.